0: This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. My name is Renee Landers and I'm a professor of law at Suffolk University Law School. I also am the faculty director of the Health and Biomedical Law concentration.
1: My name is Brendan Abel. I'm a fourth year evening student here at Suffolk. I am the managing editor of the Journal of Health and Biomedical Law and also a member of the health and biomedical law concentration. My day job, I work at the New England Journal of Medicine, and so I keep a close eye on our coverage of this constitutional challenge of the Affordable Care Act. And I noticed while we had published a number of great pieces, what was missing was a concise, accurate, and balanced overview of this constitutional challenge to inform our readers, which includes physicians who are going to be impacted greatly by this law. And so the goal was to provide just that, an overview of the issues, but perhaps at a step more detailed than your average newspaper article, but not quite at the law review article level as well.
0: So I was just in a meeting with someone else who seemed to suggest that we reached our goal, we achieved our goal of giving exactly the right amount of information that a busy professional person who was interested in the field would need to know about the issues involved in the constitutional challenge. So that made me feel really good about that.
1: We also tried to use a few different graphics to try to convey the history of the litigation that has led up to this current constitutional challenge. Your average practicing physician would never begin to be able to keep all these cases straight, as admittedly we can't either. But we did our best to create an interactive timeline that allows the reader to sort of click their way through to understand how many cases there were and how generally each case was decided. And I think that that also provides some nice context to reading this sort of article or to understanding the issues.
0: There are three major issues and then one jurisdictional issue that that the Constitution challenges raise. The first is whether the requirement in the Affordable Care Act that all individuals who can afford it purchase health insurance is within Congress's power to require under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. The second major issue is whether Congress exceeded its power In expanding the Medicaid program, which is a partnership between the federal government and the states to provide health insurance to certain low income populations, and whether the expansions are going to have a coercive effect on state governments. And we can talk a little bit more about the details of that. The third substantive issue is that if the court were to determine that one or both of those provisions is unconstitutional, whether the many other provisions in the Affordable Care Act should still survive after a ruling that these challenge provisions are unconstitutional. And that's known as a severability question, whether the challenge provisions are severable from the other parts of the law and whether the other parts of the law could go on and have effect without these challenge parts. And then finally, there is a chance that that the court could decide that it's premature to rule on those substantive law issues, those constitutional challenges, because the law, the Affordable Care Act, all the provisions of the Affordable Care Act don't really go into effect until 2014 or 2015. And the court could decide that it's precluded by the Anti-Injunction Act from reviewing the case until the first tax penalty is assessed against someone who doesn't comply with the individual mandate. So that's the fourth issue in the case.
1: Like I said before, I think we really tried to provide sort of that next step of information for the reader that they may not get from your average news source. And so, for example, in the individual mandate, trying to explain to them, using some of the specific language from what we identified as the key Commerce Clause cases, to allow them to try to either make a determination on their own or when hearing coverage from these oral arguments to just have a better understanding of exactly what the legal issues are rather than just explaining that there is going to be a decision made on the Commerce Clause, beginning to explain to them exactly what that Commerce Clause determination will entail. And so it's our hope that this will provide just a bit more information to make a more informed decision or to have a more informed understanding as we move forward with the process?
0: I think that, in my view, there are four solid votes to uphold the constitutionality of the statute on the court. There are nine justices, and it takes five justices to make a decision to you know, either uphold or overturn a lower court decision. So there are, I think, four solid votes. The four justices who were appointed by Democratic presidents, Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor and Kagan, I would be surprised if any of them were to vote that the law was unconstitutional. There's at least one justice who's squarely in the camp of opposing expansive reaches of power by Congress under the Commerce Clause, and that's Justice Thomas, who's made that very clear in a number of decisions over virtually his entire time in the court. Then the question is, if one needs the fifth vote to uphold the statute, where will that vote come from? And I think that Justice Scalia could be a possible fifth vote because he wrote a very interesting concurrence in the medical marijuana case a few terms ago. The case is called Gonzalez against Raich, and it's there the court upheld the regulation of homegrown medical marijuana against a Commerce Clause challenge. And the court said in that case that when Congress enacted the Controlled Substances Act to regulate drugs that are highly regulated or illegal totally in the United States, that Congress could reach out and touch any other activity that was related to making that statutory scheme effective, and Congress could have thought that somebody growing marijuana in their backyard was going to undermine the purposes of the Controlled Substances Act, and therefore Congress could prohibit that activity, even though the intention of the growers was that the marijuana would never be sold or given away, enter into the stream of commerce in any way. In his concurrence in that case, Justice Scalia made a lot of expansive statements about how broad Congress's power is under the Commerce Clause. And I think it would be very hard for him to distinguish the Affordable Care Act case from those comments. And then it's not clear how Firmly, Chief Justice Roberts is committed to notions of federalism. I think there are a lot of things he cares about. I think he cares about racial preferences in public schools and some other issues like that. But he hasn't sort of staked out a clear position on these federalism issues and the role of Congress, the reach of federal power under the Commerce Clause. So it's not clear what he will do. So Potentially, he could be a fifth vote. And then finally, Justice Kennedy, who is always kind of typecast as the swing voter in these decisions. It's not clear what he thinks about these issues either. And the composition of the court has changed since the last time the court dealt with a major Commerce Clause case or a Tenth Amendment case, which is the issue under the Medicaid expansion. And in those two cases, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor and Chief Justice Rehnquist were still on the court. And both of them really cared about sort of drawing lines that Congress should not cross in regulating commerce or in making requirements on the states. So they're gone now, and they haven't, I don't think, been replaced with a particularly strong voice other than Justice Thomas's voice.
1: I absolutely agree, and I would say that in terms of predictions, mine changed by the day. There's no Mm -hmm. question. But I think one important point to make is that I don't think many people would disagree with the statement that it's a close enough case where there could be a reasonable opinion on either side. I think that... Whenever you have a situation like that, nobody really knows exactly how this is going to come out. Also, it's just great fun to read into all of these little things that have come up over the last several weeks. The Supreme Court asked for additional guidance on the severability issue. In fact, they asked for a third party to provide an amicus brief on the issue of severability to argue that the individual mandate is completely severable. And so, you know, people have started to think, well, maybe that means that they're lining themselves up to strike the individual mandate, but leave everything else upstanding. I don't think that's going to happen, but it's interesting. Also, just a few weeks ago, there was another important health law Supreme Court ruling, and that was the Douglas v. Independent Living Center case. And and in that case, everyone was waiting for this rather significant health law decision to come down, and instead they said there's not proper jurisdiction. Well, that was a great reminder that you know this Tax Anti-Injunction Act, if the Supreme Court can find a way to not rule on the merits of a case, that's often the route that they're going to take. I don't think it's the strongest argument, but that was a great reminder that it is feasible. So at the end of the day, I'm really unsure exactly how it's going to come down. I think it will be close, but... If I had to put my money on it, I would think that the Supreme Court will ultimately uphold the law.
0: So it's interesting that Brendan mentioned the Douglas case because, in full disclosure, I signed on to one of the briefs in the case. There was a brief filed by former officials of the United States Department of Health and Human Services. I was a deputy general counsel there from 1996 to 1997, the end of 97 and we wanted to make a point about the law and so when the opinion came down a few weeks ago I read it eagerly to try to sort of see if there was anything that one could glean from it and Brennan is right that the court decided that it could not review the case for jurisdictional reasons but on the merits but there was extensive language in the opinion about the authority of Congress to control the terms of the Medicaid program and I read that As a big hint that perhaps the 10th Amendment challenge to the Medicaid expansion is not going to have a lot of traction with this court. But you just never know.
1: The Medicaid expansion issue is something I've tried to watch closely since it was granted cert. And it was one of those issues that you were wondering if it was going to sort of gain momentum with additional briefs and with perhaps a few respected academics coming out saying that there really could be a challenge. And I was waiting and waiting and waiting, and it really seems that it has gained no traction. And so that's been very interesting to watch as well. I would have a hard time seeing them. But the fact that it was granted cert means that there were four justices that thought that it deemed at least oral arguments, and so people are thinking about it.
0: One question is, why does the court take cases, right? And the most obvious reason in this set of circumstances is that there is a split in the circuits. Some circuits are validating the law and some circuits are holding the law. So that's a reason in and of itself to grant cert. The other thing is that the court may see this as a really important issue where continuing uncertainty over a number of years is not really good public policy. Significant business enterprises, every state government, and the federal government have to make massive investments of time and resources to make this program work and at the end of the day, you can't wait five years and then say, oh, never mind, it was all unconstitutional to begin with. That just doesn't kind of work as a way to run a country. And so maybe the court sees that ending the uncertainty in whatever direction is an important value and that it can contribute to that. Of course, one of the times when the court thought it was doing that was the Dred Scott case, which actually had the opposite effect. It provided certainty, but it also probably was one of the immediate causes of the Civil War. So the court has to be very careful in how it tries to use that kind of power.
1: The article is accessible for free without a subscription at www.nejm.org. And you can search it through any of our last names. That would be Landers, L-A-N-D-E-R-S, or Able, A-B-E-L. And I would encourage you to do so and also to take a look at our interactive timeline, which I think is a rather unique representation of all this litigation leading up to this Supreme Court challenge.
0: I also want to say one other thing about this whole process of producing the article. I think that another big takeaway for Suffolk Law School is that we have tremendous students here who are making a real contribution professionally in a lot of different ways, and health law is one of our strengths. The students on the journal have a lot of knowledge to bring to bear on healthcare care issues, and I think that students coming to Suffolk Law School will have great opportunities for training, internships and opportunities to write and publish, and that employers who hire those students after they've finished the programs here will be getting people who can make a real contribution to their clients and to their organizations. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.